Uh, as we start today, how many of you like riddles? Do you like riddles? Not really. Some of you, are you good at riddles? People that like riddles usually are good at riddles. I'm not so good at riddles. But when you look at it, um, a lot of times prophetic, you know, biblical prophecy is, is like a riddle. It's kind of like when you go to a party and somebody has a riddle. And they ask you to try to figure it out and nobody at the party can figure it out. And you all are frustrated. And then at the end, they tell you the answer and you feel foolish because it was so obvious, right? Uh, and that's kind of how it is. And you get into this, these prophecies and they're like riddles in your mind. My mind this week is, you pray for me, my, my mind has been fuzzy. Um, I got a text just before I, a little before I came up here from Anne-Marie. Her mom is, is doing okay, but she came, went in for emergency surgery. And so there's been some complications. She seems to be okay, but she asked us to pray for her. So I said I, I, I would, and she said thank you. And I sent back an emoji. It was going to be a thumbs up. And I sent back one with a smiley face and a kiss and uh, a little heart. So, so they probably won't be going here anymore. <laughs> so anyway, hopefully my mind will be clear as we move on today. But a lot of this is really like, it's really like a riddle. And we're going to look today at one of the big riddles um, that we have, a, a really interesting prophecy. Some prophecies, I will clarify that some prophecies are very straightforward. When we talk about heaven, for example, he goes and he gives us actual descriptions of what heaven will look like and the dimensions and so forth. But most prophecies in scripture, um, he doesn't tell us what they are because if he told us what they were, then somebody could go out and try to act it out, right? And so he doesn't want that, so he has to camouflage it. And yet, it has to be clear enough so that when it's been fulfilled, you can see it. Pretty tricky business. It would take a brilliant mind to do it, and no one more brilliant than the Lord. So we're going to look at a bit of a, a riddle today as we look at one of the most famous prophecies ever found in Daniel. Uh, chapter. Uh, we'll be looking at chapter 9, starting at verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. It says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before Yahweh. Remember when it's capitalized? It's Yahweh is the actual word in Hebrew. My God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed, here it comes, about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in, everla in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that. From the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall come, shall be cut off, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. 
and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. How many of you said you were good with riddles? How about this one? Does that just blow your mind? Well, it's supposed to. Uh, so it's a little complicated here. We're going to jump into it and, and understand a prophecy just like a riddle. You need to get the background, right? Where is this coming from? What's the context behind it? The context behind it is Daniel is praying and speaking to God. And remember what we learned last week. Daniel had gotten the brand new edition, hot off the press, a little scroll, actually a pretty big scroll, that today we call the book of Jeremiah. And he had that, and he's reading it. And when he comes across Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 10, and later Jeremiah chapter 29, um, verses 14 to 19, you know what he finds out? He finds out that Israel has been punished for their sin. And as a result of their punishment, Israel is now um, exiled in Babylon. But when they repent, they will return to Israel. And that's what Jeremiah says. Now, we understand this. Again, the context is covenant. Covenant is a peace treaty. God is sovereign. He's the king. Israel are his servants. God doesn't say, I'm going to give you a law, and if you follow the law, you're in. God, essentially, by grace through faith, says, I love you. I've chosen you as my people. Just believe and we'll work together here. Now, I've given you a law to show you how you can be better people, how you can have a better relationship with me, and how you can represent me to others. And I will mediate that through individuals like Moses and David and others. That's the setup. If you follow me, you're blessed. If you don't follow me, there will be curses. You know, if it gets bad, there's going to be punishment. So this goes on for centuries, and finally God says, enough, enough. And you're going to be punished. And the punishment is going to fit the crime. I called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, and I called him to Canaan, which became Israel. You know what? I'm going to send you back to Ur of the Chaldeans. They call it Babylon now. I'm sending you all back. And we're going to have an exile. In fact, all that's left is the major tribe of Judah. So Judah is all that's left of Israel because of their disobedience. So now you didn't get it, Judah. I'll keep you together, but you're moving. And then he says, but if you repent 70 years later, you'll come back. And Daniel's calculating, and he says, I think we're close. And so he begins to pray. And as he's praying, in answer to his prayer, God sends Gabriel, the great warrior um, angel, who is the same guy who talked. Remember, we talked about last week. We talked about last week, too. Gabriel's the guy who went and told Zechariah that he's going to have a son named John the Baptist. And he told a little peasant girl named Mary that she was going to have a son named Jesus, right? This is the same guy. He's an old guy, and he's been around a while. So he's there, and, and he flies into him. You know, he sees him. It sounds like he just flew. He actually saw him flying. And some have thought that maybe this is, means that angels have wings. If so, it's the only place where it would say that in this sense. Um, we know that angels don't have to have wings any more than superheroes have to have anything more than a cape right? Uh, people fly around. We've seen them in the movies. Maybe he could have flown around without anything, but he flies and he comes to him. And this time, notice he's not afraid of him. In the past, he's afraid, but he's establishing a relationship with Gabriel. I think we can say that we'll get to know Gabriel one day. We'll have a relationship with angels. Isn't that pretty cool? Then the other thing that's cool here is that God delights in answering our prayers more than we do in asking them. 
You know, th these are the underlying principles and applications that we'll see throughout this is that at the heart of this message is that it's a relationship with God that matters most. And God wants us to ask for prayers. He delights in working with us and in our lives. God loves us. He says he loves, isn't that beautiful, that tender touch? You are loved, God says of Daniel. Do you know that when God meets us, he'll say, you are loved. I love you. You are mine. And to the degree that we love God and grow closer to him, we'll grow more and more close in our love with him, and more things will become clearer for us in our relationship with him. And that's what's happening to Daniel here. And so he tells him those things, and then he says, um, we're gonna, I'm going to explain this vision to you. So that's the context, that's kind of the background, and now he jumps into the purpose. And the purpose is extremely important, and it's often overlooked. And it's found in verse 24. And we focus on the 70 weeks, which we'll get to in a little bit. But let's understand the purpose. What Daniel is doing, if you read his prayer, is Daniel is praying for something eternally. He's praying in a temporal sense for something eternally. We do that all the time. How many of you have ever prayed, God, help me never to sin again? You know, don't let me ever do that again. And yet you know realistically that that is not going to be answered on this planet. But, we have one person has a real problem back there. <laughs> um, is that, that, that is not going to be answered on this planet. But it will be answered eternally, right? It will be answered eternally. So what Daniel basically does, I don't think he even realizes it, but Daniel is basically praying for the end, you know, for, the, for Jerusalem to, to have everything all together and, and for how it's all going to work out. And, and what Gabriel says is that God has told me to tell you, you're not going to fully understand this, but I want it to be recorded so people can see it when it happens, that I want you to see the journey that Jerusalem is going to be on historically to the end of this time in history. When this human error ends, I'm going to take you to the end and tell you the answer of your prayers. Your prayers are going to be answered in an eternal sense. I'm going to bring you to that end where it happens. So Daniel kind of takes a deep breath and he wants to hear this. Now, this is what he says. This is what, Daniel, you may not be realizing it, but this is what you're praying for. You're praying that a time will come when the transgressions, the sins of this nation will end. You're praying that a time will come when individual sin will end. You're praying that a time will come when some kind of sacrifice will be made to make atonement for these sins and make all that possible. Daniel, you're praying for a time where there will be some kind of a seal, some kind of an ordinance, something that will, will be there to remind us that, you, that, that this has been done. And Daniel, you're praying for a time that a place, ideally Jerusalem, will be made holy by this act. But the interesting thing is the word holy place can also be translated holy one. So he may be saying that you are praying that somebody will be anointed through a sacrifice that will make him known. That's what you're actually praying for. Do you realize that, Daniel? That's what has to happen for your prayers to be answered. That's the purpose. You ready for the fulfillment? Let's see how well you do on the fulfillment. We'll break this out. Now, I, you know, when you get all these numbers... Those of you, you know, and some of you know me well in this room, understand why I was a, uh, I majored in, in the social sciences. I'm not good with numbers. Okay, numbers are not my thing, but, I, but these are pretty straightforward for the most part, and you can read what other people say and talk to people, and they, they come pretty straightforward. Um, 
What he's talking about here, when he talks about seven weeks at the beginning, um, what he's talking about with the 70 weeks, the 70 weeks literally reads seven, 77s. So the assumption is sevens, there's seven days in a week, right? So there's 70 weeks. But we know it can't be 70 weeks. If you multiply that, that's 490 days, and this stuff goes way beyond that. So the most normal way to understand it is either 70, it literally means 70 units, 70 units of seven. And so it's understood that these are 70 years, 70 units of years. So if you calculate that out, it comes out roughly, it comes out basically to 490 years. You all got that? Not so difficult now, but what he does is he breaks it up and he goes, first we'll have 70 years, then we'll have 62 units of 70, and then we'll have seven years. And that's the way most people take it. So he's breaking it up in a unique way. And we have to be careful not to be real precise with the numbers because I think there's, there's a little bit of give and take here. He's basically giving us a general picture of this. All right? So that's the beginning here. Now, now I, let's see how you do. Let's see how you do as he starts to get into it. He says that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. The going out of the word, as Jeremiah says, when Jerusalem is exiled. And Jerusalem is exiled basically over like a 20-year period. It happens in stages. So over like a 20-year period, they're exiled. And from that point on, for about 70 years later, they are to come back. Jeremiah calls out, there will be a coming back. And when they come back, there will be somebody who will lead them back. And this person is called an anointed one, which in Hebrew is Messiah, from which we get the word Messiah. But he will also be a prince. Okay. So, in the year that Daniel wrote this, 538 B.C., his prayers, the first stage of his prayers, were answered. And King Cyrus the Great made a decree telling the Israelites they could go back to Jerusalem. That's pretty cool. It was approximately how many years later? 70 years. It, it meets that generation, 70 years. And you can give and take some years because it was a progress. You know, it wasn't like from this date to this date, but it was more like from this period of time to this period of time, approximately 70 years. And you can map it out and say they went back right around that time. And they went back again. It took them about 20 years to go back and rebuild the temple. But over that period of time, it happened. So it all matches up over a 70-year period. There was a man who led them back does anybody remember who the name of that man was? If you do, you may have trouble saying it. His name was Zerubbabel. A lot of kids made fun of him growing up. He was a tough guy. Um, Zerubbabel. Um, why is that important? Well, we look back historically. Do you know Zerubbabel, if you take back his heritage and you go back into his family, he was descended from King David and was the rightful king of Israel, the one that should have been anointed king. But he could not be anointed king because there wasn't a kingdom. He was just being sent back to this land under another king. But he was still a prince. 
Do you see the fulfillment? Zerubbabel is sent out approximately 70 years later to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, the land of Judah. Isn't that cool? So we see that's the first step. Now that's a little bit, you may not know that as well, but as we go further, I think you'll begin to see this a little bit later, better. So the temple is rebuilt, but the temple isn't just rebuilt. There's a progressive rebuilding of the temple. After it's rebuilt, it's expanded in time. And he goes kind of in the future, and he says there's going to be a troubled time where the temple's going to keep being built, basically. And it's a little fuzzy until you look at the future, and you say, well, the temple was rebuilt, but yet it kept being rebuilt for a long time. And who was the guy who rebuilt it? Do you remember? Who was the guy who rebuilt the temple and made it really big? Hint, he was around when Jesus was born. Herod the Great. Herod the Great rebuilt that temple. Now, it, he didn't finish it. He was the architect, but it was such a big project that it, he didn't live long enough to see it finished. But Herod the Great was starting to do that. And it happened at a tough time. And that's why it said he had to have squares and moats and you know, things to protect him when he was building it. When we went to Jerusalem, they took us underneath the city and they showed us a giant moat that Herod had built to protect his city while he was rebuilding all this stuff. So that's what happened. We'll say, when did that happen? Well, if you calculate it out, this happened at, we had the 70 years. Now we're in the period of the 62 units of 70. Almost everybody you read calculates that to 483 years. 483 years later, remember, it just has to be within the time zone. It has to get us to that generation. Takes us right to the time, basically right around the time the temple was being completed. Herod's dead, but it's still not completed. So it ties in. Is that cool? Now, I think you'll get this one. Then somebody comes, and it says that after that, 62 weeks, 483 years later, at this, same, at this same period of time as the temple is being completed, an anointed one shall be cut off. Anointed one is again Messiah. This time it doesn't say he's a prince. It says he is the Messiah. In Greek, that word is Christos, or Christ. Who's this talking about? Jesus. Jesus is coming. Does he fit the time? Yeah, he does. You take 483 years later, that gets us right to the lifetime of Jesus. Depending on how you calculate it, 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 can, it varies a little bit, but it always gets you right. You know, every, every calculation gets you right in his lifespan, right in his period of life. There's one calculation. If you started from the time of Ezra, when Ezra in 5, 458 BC, Ezra went to Jerusalem and he and he brought the law to Jerusalem as they were getting ready to build, rebuild Jerusalem and so forth and kind of brought everything together. And if you started from that time and he brought some other people with him, you calculate that out and it comes out basically to AD 26, the year that we believe Jesus began his ministry historically. Is that wild? I mean, it doesn't have to be on the dime, but it's that close. This is talking about Jesus. What happened to Jesus? How did he get cut off? He was crucified. That's what this is talking about. We look back and we go, whoa, 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 this is, this is what happened. And when he's cut off, something happens here. 
the covenant ends. They can no longer go and make sacrifices in the temple for the things they've done wrong. They no longer have a mediator to come and work with them and do that for them. Everything has been cut off. And so Jesus establishes a new covenant, which is what Jeremiah writes about in chapter 31. And the new covenant means that we don't have to go to the temple anymore. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins so we can have a relationship with him. And now we don't have to go to another mediator. We can go directly to Jesus. Jesus ended the old ways because he died to make that possible. Does that fit the purpose that we looked at earlier? We're just tying it all in, right? The transgression of Israel has been ended as it was because Israel as it was no longer exists. Sin for individuals have been ended. If people give their lives to Christ, they don't have to live in sin anymore. They can be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross for our sins as the atonement for our sins. Jesus has made it possible for us to live righteously with him forever in heaven. These are all parts of the purpose. And you know what the ordinance probably is, is the Lord's Supper. Today I drink with you the new, to the new covenant, is what he says, right? When he takes the, the, the wine. That's what he's talking about. That's the, that's the act. That's the thing that seals the deal. Every time we take the Lord's covenant, we remember Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled. Is that cool or what? And then finally, he goes on and he says, this has made Jerusalem a holy place. What's the most holy place on the planet? Everybody wants to fight over Jerusalem. But it could also be taken that it establishes Jesus as the most holy one. Either way, you want to cut it, it works. And so we, and I think this is powerful stuff. Then he goes on and he doesn't stop there. And he says, basically, because Israel has rejected Jesus, Jesus rejects them. And the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, the temple is destroyed. As Jesus said, there will not be one stone left on the temple. It all gets destroyed. One of the seven wonders of the world. And yet it's completely, utterly destroyed. Who does it? Who destroys, what, what nation destroys the temple in Jerusalem? Do you know? Rome, right? Rome does it. And the person who leads Rome is a general, and his name is Titus. General Titus comes in, and he comes in slow, and he tries to work things worth them, and then as things get crazy, he comes in like a flood, and he just destroys it all. In fact, it, part of it, if you read it, was not even what he wanted to have happen. Things just got out of control, and next thing you know, everything's destroyed. What do we know about General Titus? He is the son of Vespasian. Vespasian is the emperor. Titus is the prince. Is that heavy or what? I mean, is that, so the prince, prince is Titus, and Titus destroys the temple. And now we have wars that continue on down till the rest of existence, basically, until everything comes to an end. Are we still having wars? I mean, is that wild or what? I think the biggest takeaway that I'd like you to have today is to, is to get excited about what God has done, not what he's going to do. Because we can see this, and we can see the fulfillment. And you should get fired up when you look at this. This should give you confidence in your faith. When you see this kind of stuff, it's like, this is unbelievable. This thing is for real. I know what I believe in and why. Okay, so that's some good stuff. Now we're going to go to the future, and I don't like this part as much because it gets pretty tricky. Okay, um, 
as we get to the future, a couple things to keep in mind, a couple principles to keep in mind is that if it's been fulfilled already, then it should be pretty clear like this is. And if it has not been fulfilled already, then it shouldn't be that precise or clear. Now, those are general principles. They don't always fit, don't always fit, but they generally do. So keep those in mind as we kind of work through this. Now, the first thing we see is that it says, and he, and we're still talking about Titus. So when we look at this, it sounds like Titus makes a strong covenant. He makes a treaty of his own for one week, um, which would be one year, we would probably take it. And for half of that week, you know, and, and this is a little bit weird language. Some people think that he's doing this for like seven years. Some people think it's symbolic, but for, for some period of time, which somehow fills in the last seven, because all we have left is, is the seven weeks. So somehow over seven weeks, whether you break them up, some people think, whether you put them together, symbolically, he is going to come. Gen- General Titus is, is supposed to, to try to work out a deal with the Jewish people, and then at the end of that, he's going to get himself into a position of power over them and do some horrible things. And he's going to bring about the abomination. If we understand the last couple chapters, the abomination is when the evil Greek king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, took a pig, went hog wild, that's a pun, um, and he put a pig on the altar of God, sacrificing it to the Greek um, god Zeus. Um, That's an abomination. So he's got to do something on that level. And then as a result of that, God's going to take him out, and he's going to be defeated in battle. Here's the problem. That didn't happen. What happened to Titus? Well, he did destroy the temple, so he did end sacrifices, but, you know, he didn't make a real deal with the Jews. In fact, he went on to become a popular emperor, ruled for a couple years, died of a fever, that's it. This isn't Titus. So who in the world is this passage talking about. Some say, well, maybe Nero. Nero's dead. He's been dead for a while. He's not in the picture. Who is this? Now, one of the things that helps us understand, and actually is a little bit confusing at some points, but is what Jesus has to say. And Jesus is all of it discourse. Jesus is asked by um, Andrew, James, John, Peter, they they ask him to tell them about the end times. They want to know about the temple, but they want to know about the end of all times. And Jesus begins to talk about that. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 16, he addresses the abomination that's talked about here. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. This one gets a little bit difficult. There's a couple ways to read this. One way you could read it is he's saying, when you see Titus coming and you see the, you know, the emblems of the, of the Roman soldiers that are basically of false gods and so forth, desecrating the God's temple and his place, then flee because he's going to destroy the temple. So this would be in the immediate sense. There's another way to take this, which is to say that Jesus is talking about the distant future. And if you read the text, he actually is saying there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and all these things, and it it makes it clear that that's not all going to happen in a short period of time. This is the distant future that he's going into. The problem is, is is he doing one or the other? 
And some take one side and some take the other side. And because we don't know for sure, you're welcome to do what you want to do. But I would suggest, to me, probably the best answer is that 90, probably close to 90% of the prophecies in the Old Testament have foreshadowings. If we're talking about a riddle, they have clues. So he'll say something and he'll give us a clue, which is a foreshadowing or a type. And, and they're almost always like that. So it's almost like a short-term and long-term prophecy. So this is the short-term. It's kind of my clue. And here's the long-term. Okay, now hold on to that. And let me give you an example that we've already given you. Zerubbabel. He says somebody's going to come and he's going to be an anointed one, like he's going to be the Messiah. And he's going to lead his people back to Israel and establish Israel again. Who does that? Zerubbabel. A lot of people thought perhaps he is the Messiah. Short-term, prophecy fulfilled. Long-term, is he really the Messiah? No, he's, but he gives us an example. He does the same thing with Solomon, right? He says, David is the first king. David's going to have a son. His son is going to be anointed king. He will start a dynasty that will last forever. That happens. He's the anointed one. But no, he dies, there's civil war, and everything falls apart. But he's a symbol of what is to come. Can you follow that? So the understanding is, is that why did we even talk about Antiochus Epiphanes? He really wasn't that big of a deal. Because he becomes a symbol, because he's a small part in history, but he becomes a symbol of what is to come. And if he is a symbol of what is to come, then he is the clue. He's the clue of there's going to be somebody like this guy that's going to come again in the future. And we have a lot of examples of people like that. It's interesting if we look at wars, have you not noticed that the wars, we'll have a bunch of wars and then we'll have a major war, we'll have a bunch of wars and then we'll have a major war, and each time the major war gets bigger? What was the last major war we had? World War II. And you know what? A lot, it, probably Adolf Hitler came as close as anybody to fulfilling this character as anybody. He did all the things that you would almost expect for a long time, and people thought this was it. But it wasn't it. And so that's what he's saying. There's going to be somebody else that is coming. Paul chimes in at this time because the, the Thessalonian church was asking him the same question. What is, how is this all going to work out? And this is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul is saying that this guy that comes is going to take power. There's going to, he's going to take power over Israel. He's going, to, he's going to strike a deal with them of some sort and get himself in a position of power. The temple will have to be rebuilt, and after the temple is rebuilt... He's going to, basically, the abomination is he's going to take himself in the temple and proclaim that he's God. And then there's going to be a war and he's going to go down. End of story. That's, that seems to be what it's saying. I'm not giving you a lot of specifics because we don't know for sure. You know, we can just basically say that at some point in the future, a guy's going to come and there's going to be another major war. Guy's going to take control and he's going to be really bad. He's going to cause all sorts of offerings. And then when he says how great he is, down he goes be a big war in the end. Okay? That's, that's the general gist of this. Um, the, the thing is is, is, is it believable? No, not a couple centuries ago. But in 1948, Israel became a nation again. 
And I was walking around the Temple Mount a few weeks ago. And I walked right up to um, the, the Dome of the Rock. It was a memorial that the Muslims made, beautiful memorial to uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And on the top it has this gold dome that's made out of real gold. But I'm told that the temple was three times the size of it. And there's Israeli soldiers everywhere. And you know what? This afternoon, they could take over that thing and destroy all that stuff. And within, with modern technology, within a year, they could have it all rebuilt. It could happen. Some think that Titus will be from Italy, the, the guy who's going to come in, because Titus was from Italy. He, he, this person may be from Italy or may be from, Rome, um, um, from Europe, but it's not necessary. But, but anyway, it, you could see it. Couldn't you see it all playing out? God's restraining it. You have to understand, too, that they're a sec- Israel's a secular nation. And if they did that, they would have reprisals from Muslim citizens within and reprisals from Muslims without. It could start a world war. Well, well yeah, that's what we're talking about. See, So it could all come into place. Now, having said this, um, it's clear as mud. You guys all have it, and everybody's satisfied. No, because there's people here... <laughs> who totally strongly disagree with some of that. And to be honest, I've kind of morphed things together. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't really have an exact view. That's when I'm reading the Bible, that's about as clear as I can come out with it, just reading the Bible by itself. And I have listened to other people and stuff, but I'm just trying to, to go as close as I can to what I see. But other people can see other things because we're dealing with prophecy. So we don't know for sure. There are three main views. I don't have time to go into them all for you, but just so that you can say that you're not uneducated on this. The three main views. The first view I'm going to talk to you about is the preterist view. Um, It's a view that really got popular um, during the um, counter-reformation movement with uh, Catholics originally, but then has been embraced by a lot of Protestants. It's growing, probably one of the views that's been growing the most lately. The preterist view is, is basically that these events were already fulfilled at the time of Titus. Uh, and there's different ways to cut this. Some people say that if you calculate from the, the time of Jesus' um, you know, ministry, the start of Jesus' ministry to the time the church was born, that's about seven years. And so that just fulfills it all. So the other things we have are all symbolic afterwards, but it's already basically been fulfilled. Um, and that's one view. My, my, my biggest problem, I, I like that view in a lot of ways, but my biggest problem is it doesn't seem clear enough to be fulfilled to me, but I have people I really respect that think that it is, Um, and and I could be proven wrong, and that's cool. Um, I don't care if I'm proven wrong. I'd I'd be more than happy. I I like that, (laughs) but I just don't know for sure. The other view is the, um, the covenant view. The covenant view says we have a bunch of covenants, and the last covenant is the new covenant. Everybody agrees with those covenants, and everybody agrees with the new covenant. Everybody agrees with the covenant view. Covenant view doesn't know what we do exactly with the last seven years. They say the first three and a half years takes us right up to the destruction of, of um, Jerusalem. And then there's going to be three and a half years of suffering and fighting and so forth that will take place in the future under the Antichrist and all the other things. So that, that view is you know, a good view. It's a, it's a more ancient view. It's been around a while. It's been developed, especially developed and popular with Calvin, John Calvin and the Reform Movement. Then there's the other view that is the most recent view and by far the most marketed view in history. It's not a majority view, um, and it's the newest view, but a lot of people think it's the only view. You know, some of you have been raised watching um, the Left Behind series, and so you believe this view is the only view, um, and it's a very credible view, but it, you know, I just need to let you know that it, it isn't the only view, and that's what they call dispensationalism. 
And dispensationalism will chart out that there's different eras in history, and sometimes those eras, you know, kind of cover some of the different, um, the, the different uh, covenants. But there's different eras, and you can map them out, and people map them out all different ways, but there are different, you know, eras that kind of you can observe historically. And then they all come out to seven weeks at the end, which would be seven years, three and a half years, he strikes the deal, three and a half years, he destroys everything, and then he's destroyed. In the middle of that, most people say is a rapture. Um, but some people say the rapture is at the end, some people say it's at the beginning. Uh, and that era is usually called the Great Tribulation. And there's a lot of good to that. Just have to remember that it is very, in this case, it's very precise, and usually prophecy is not that precise. We usually don't have, know that much. If you look at historically prophecies, we, we really don't know till the end. Now, where do we stand as a church? We don't. You know, we were talking, as uh, the three of us were talking the other day, and we all have different bents. You know, I get to present my bent because I'm speaking today, but we all have different bents. But at the end of the day, we all looked at each other and we said, you know what? We agree more than we disagree because none of us know. All of us agree that we really don't know. And that we may have bents, but, but we, we just, we're, we're not for certain. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, that you will not know the day or the hour. And so we refuse to say that we know. Um, and it's okay to have different views. The, the one thing we agree on is we're not for sure. <laughs> you know, and, I, and, and you got to be careful. I actually one time, once upon a time, I actually had a friend who was working for a well-known um, pastor who was on television and radio and stuff. And, and the guy said, hey, apply for this and you can get this job. So I applied and I did all sorts of applications and I got a telephone interview and then I got a personal interview and the guy basically said, you got the job if you want it. And I said, you know, the only thing is, as I'm thinking about this, he has this really strong stand. You know, he took a, one of these positions very, very strongly. And I said, and I just don't know for sure. I kind of lean that way, but I don't know for sure. And that was it. It was over. Because that's where they stood. Now, that's not a salvation issue. It doesn't mean that they aren't going to be with the Lord or this guy wasn't a good guy and he's done some wonderful things, but it's just, we're not like that. Okay, to illustrate that. So two things I'm certain of. One, you can't know. And two, when it happens, you'll know when you know. All right, so now what do we do with this? A couple things we want to do with this today as we close up. One, one is... Um, as we look at this, I wanted to inspire you to study your Bibles. I know people that have come to know the Lord. I know people who come to know the Lord through prophecy. And I know people that prophecy is what keeps them studying their Bible regularly. It seems like most of the people I know that are engineers or mathematicians or technological geeks, they like prophecy. Numbers guys like prophecy. Others may like the literary things. We like the parables. We like the... Um, the, the poems, the, the psalms, and others may like the sweeping narratives and the history, or maybe the theology, or maybe the practical proverbs, right? Whatever you like, let that draw you, but make sure you read all the other stuff too. Make sure that you love the God who loves you. And how do you do that? You got to listen to him. If you have a relationship with somebody, it can't just be you talking all the time. You need to know him, and you know him as you read what he says about himself in Scripture. And if you don't know him, come and talk to us that you might come into a relationship with him. Second thing, second thing that he says here that I want us to see is we need to be alert. Because we don't know how the end is going to be. So don't be arrogant. Don't think you know it. And be ready, because if, if it's already happened, 
you know, and the preterist view is right, that's okay. I just need to, you know, when it happens, it'll work out. And if, you, if I'm a preterist, I need to be ready in case I'm wrong, in case, the, you know, the, the uh, Antichrist does come. See, so we just, whatever side we're on, we just keep our eyes open. Because, for example, practically speaking, when Nazism came, there were Christians that supported it. They missed it. We don't want to be there. So we need to be alert and have our eyes open. Um, and it should inspire us to get closer to God. Now, you know, here's, here's the next thing, um, and that is that it should cause us to share our faith. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham, you know what Billy Graham said about the end times? He said, I pray that it doesn't come in my lifetime because I want to lead as many people to Christ as I can. God doesn't desire anybody to perish. Too often I hear people saying, I can't wait till the rapture comes so I can get out of here and let everybody else suffer or whatever. I want out. That shouldn't be what it's all about. Our goal should be to see as many people come to know the Lord as we can until that time comes. So who are the people God's placed in your life? Who are the 8 to, to 15 people that you can identify that he's put in your life that don't know the Lord, or don't go to church, who are unsaved? We need to pray for them. We need to invite them in. We need to care for them. We need to love them. We need to pray for people on the street that you see that don't know the Lord. We need to be constantly thinking what we can do. We need to be financially supporting missionaries, going on short-term missions, maybe becoming a missionary. We need to reach this world for Christ. And this should inspire us because we don't know how much time we have. We just don't know. So we need to get the job done. And then the the fourth and final thing is that it should cause us to have more of a respect and love for God, that we should realize that he is the one who's in control. You might get nervous sometimes. I I do. You know, you're growing up and you're nervous about where am I going to go to school? What am I going to do? Who am I going to get married? What's going to happen? Then you get married and you're worried about, am I going to have kids? And now I have kids. And what's going to happen to my kids? And can I keep my job? And my health is failing. And there's always something, right, that we worry about. Now I gave you something else. But the point is, is none of this catches God unaware. He's in complete control. A good verse to memorize is Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. Hold on to that one. He's in control. In the meantime, concentrate on enjoying the party and let him answer the riddle. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much uh, for this prophecy and, and for this insight that I think has drawn me closer to you this week just as I've studied it, and I'm grateful for that. And I pray that it inspires each of us to live our lives more for you and draw closer to you, that we might have a deeper love for you and experience your love evermore in our life, even as Daniel did. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.